Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also uncircumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all the trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It is a gift to us. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus, would you this morning lift your word off of the pages so that it is living and active and cutting to our hearts, God. We want to hear from you today. We pray you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. As always, Lord, when we come before you, we are are needing each and every Sunday morning, to hear you speak to us. And so, God, um, I pray that you would silence my voice and my opinions and my thoughts, God. And as you fill me with your spirit, I pray that your voice and your perspective would come through. And uh, we invite you to be here. We ask for your spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, you could write down this title. The title of my message today is The Captivation Conflict. The Captivation Conflict. Now, last week, as we broke into chapter 2 of Colossians, we saw the Apostle Paul begin to step into some of the mess that this church was in. Up until this point, we said Paul was, he was like Brother Paul more than Apostle Paul. He was being kind of encouraging and loving. He was declaring his prayer requests for this church. He was validating that they were a community of faith, hope, and love. And then as Paul began to describe his ministry and his calling in life, which was to lead people on into maturity... A a shift began to take place in the book to where Paul sort of engaged. It's kind of like Iron Man putting on, or Tony Stark putting on his Iron Man costume. Iron Man doesn't put on Tony Stark. Tony Stark puts on Iron Man, okay? And that's kind of what happened in chapter 2. Brother Paul put on Apostle Paul, and he started to engage his ministry and really enter into some of the mess that this church was in and began to address some of the different issues that this church was facing. That's what we broke into and found in chapter 2. And he began, just as we read there in verse 8, he begins this address by warning this church of the dangerous threat of deception. He begins with a warning of the dangerous threat of deception. We knew in this community, in this church, it seems pretty clear that there were some that the enemy had planted around this community that were propagating anti-gospels. They were propagating Jesus plus something else. 
they were preaching and leading people to believe something that had a sprinkle of Jesus in it, but with a little bit of their opinion and legalism and mysticism mixed into it. And so Paul gives this church a good, healthy warning. It's, it's good every now and then to hear the word, beware, okay? Watch out. You know, we don't like to hear that sometimes. We don't want someone to tell me to stop or change or watch out, but it's healthy. And in fact, the friends that truly love you will tell you to watch out. And that's what Paul's doing. He's lovingly encouraging this church to be cautious, to be careful, because there is this legitimate threat facing every believer of being deceived. In 2 Corinthians, we saw Paul tell this church, he said, I fear, lest somehow, the same way that Satan deceived Eve, that he would tempt you away from the the simplicity that's in Christ. This is a a reality that we face each and every day. Though we we have clung to Christ, we have looked to Christ, deception is real. It's a real threat that we would be led away from the simplicity of Jesus onto other things. Now, the good news of following Jesus is that you have his help. Now, that's simple, but isn't that good news? Isn't it good to know that you are not just left to the reality of threats to your faith? Now, Paul says, listen, I'm warning you, but he also encourages them. He gives them some keys to disarm deception. In other words, you don't have to be deceived. Deception doesn't have to win. And it's this good news that though the deception of threat is real, so is the opportunity for victory in Jesus. A lot of times I think we are so aware of the problems in life and the threats to our relationship with God that we become so unaware of the power of God available to us. Yes, it's real. Deception's real. And you got to watch out for it. And you should be somewhat afraid in a godly way. But remember... In Christ, you have the truth. And the truth makes you, what? Free. So there's no need to fear. God is here. There's no need to to, to fret. Beware, but also be encouraged. Deception doesn't have to win. Now, he began with this sort of general warning about deception. Just generally. Don't be deceived. About what? Just anything, not Jesus. You know, that's kind of how he starts. He starts with this general warning. But then here in verse 8, as he goes through the rest of this chapter, we see that Paul, in this section, he begins to zero in on one specific area of deception. One specific area that is not just applicable to a church 2,000 years ago, but is still running rampant in the church of today. And it's the deceptive anti-gospel of legalism. He zeroes in. He gets specific. He goes, yeah, you got to be careful. Don't be deceived. But it's almost like he stops and goes, but let me talk to you about one specific deception that you got to watch out for. you got to watch out for legalism, this anti-gospel. Now, in as much as we know that the Colossian church was surrounded by what looked like the early stages of Gnosticism, which was this philosophy and this theology that would accept and receive Jesus, but would sort of edit it to be what was more palatable or made more sense in the philosophical culture of that day. So things like, ideas like God and the material world, um, they're separate things. God is spirit, and he can never be involved with anything material. Material is evil. God is only good. So God can't create a material world. So they believe things like, so we used angels. 
They had to do it for him. Like, God couldn't do it. He's like, can you, I can't create the world, angels. Can you do that for me? I just can't touch it, you know. So that's literally what they thought, which is, um, which is heresy, which is false doctrine, because the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, and after he created it, he didn't say evil. He said, it's good. It's a good thing. Now, sin has corrupted the good thing that God created, but this is what these Gnostics believe. They had these certain ideas. So Jesus, okay, Jesus, God in the flesh. Well, let's figure out how we can make this work. All right, this is what God's word is saying, but this is what we do today, too. This is what God's word is saying, but let me try to make it work. Let me try to make it socially acceptable and mentally compatible. So here's how this has to work. Jesus, okay, he wasn't God in the flesh because God can't be flesh. Jesus was the emanation of God's presence, like a hologram or graph or whatever Princess Leia showed up in Star Wars, the first one, okay? Um, that was Jesus. Not really God, just kind of like, ah, you know? And so Paul, listen, Paul, he responds, I love this, he responds to these counterfeit doctrines by just proclaiming the simple, authentic truth of the gospel. It's, it's the power of God into salvation. Not always trying to get into every nuance of disagreement and fix this and fix that and fix that issue, but just here's how we fix counterfeit theology. Study the real thing, Right? Know who Jesus is. Know the truth of Christ. And when you know the truth of Christ, whatever counterfeit form comes your way, you just look at Jesus and go, yeah, that's, no. No, that's not Jesus. And so that's how he's arming this church. Now, it wasn't just this Gnosticism, though. And these men with, with this Gnostic theology, they also propagated themselves as being like the, um, the spiritually elite, you know? So like, I have this knowledge and you don't. But if you call now in the next, it was kind of like that, you know, that was sort of their, their mindset. And so they were leading a lot of people astray, but it wasn't just Gnosticism. And now we don't know, exa we don't know exactly what the Colossian heresy was. There's a lot of speculation. You, you could see the problem mostly by the answers that Paul gives here in the book. Whatever it was, there was certainly some kind of mixture with law keeping with legalism, with what's called a, being a Judaizer. Someone who says, okay, you've come to Christ, you've put faith in Christ, you've trusted in the finished work of the cross, but have you also performed these duties to maintain your right standing with him? Legalism. That seems to be where Paul's going. Paul spends a whole section here in this letter really getting into this deceptive theology of legalism. Now, the word legalism, just spoiler alert, it's not in the Bible. Okay, it's not in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of words that aren't in the New Testament that are still good, though, right? Like the word Trinity, it's not in the Bible. Do you know that? Um, what else? A ton of them, okay? Um, now, I should have studied more, but um, <laughs> legalism's one of them, okay? Now, legalism's not in the Bible, but here's what you have, okay? Let's define what we mean by legalism and see what the scriptures actually have to say about it before we kind of dive more into this. Now, what is legalism? What is a legalist? How would you define someone who's a legalist? A legalist, you could write this down and think of it this way. A legalist is someone who sees a relationship and right standing with God. A legalist is someone who sees a relationship and right standing with God being based on a legal list of duties that must be performed in order to measure up to his favor. Legalism. Your relationship with God, your right standing with God is based on a legal list 
of duties, of works, of achievements that you must perform in order to measure up to his favor. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word legalism. It uses the phrase works or righteousness, self-righteousness. Or Ephesians 2 says it this way, boasting in the flesh. Or the whole book of Galatians. That'll, that'll just make it really easy. Um, the Bible, time to time, deals with this idea of the folly of human beings patting themselves on the back for earning a relationship with God, for being good enough, for measuring up. That's legalism. Now, there were certainly legalists facing this church that Paul, he says in verse 8, beware. He says, watch out for them. Watch out for these legalists. And I know today, yeah, we, we could probably say that too. But you probably should watch out for legalists in your life. Like, yeah, I think that's always wise. If, if you're vulnerable to believing something not the gospel, somebody adding to the gospel, which is Jesus did it all. And then someone comes along and says, yeah, he did it all, but he left this part for you to complete, right? You, you probably should watch out for them. But here's what I think is, is probably most applicable to us. Um, you know, in my life, the biggest legalist that I fight with is the legalist in me. It's legalist Lundy. That's who he is. The, the biggest, I don't know about you, the greatest Judaizer in my life. Now, I've I, I met some Judaizers, and they're not, they're not the best friends, okay? But, but the greatest Judaizer that I'm facing is not found through a magnifying glass. It's found in a mirror. It's found in my own tendency to always try to earn God's love and always make sure I'm measuring up. It's the legalist in me. Now, go back to that definition. Let's look at our own lives today. Let's ask this question. Legalism. Does your relationship with God, today, right now, does your right standing with God, is it based on a legal list of duties? Often to-dos or to-don'ts. A legal list of duties that you must perform in order to measure up to his favor. It's interesting, this idea of performing God's duties, of being good enough, to-dos or to-don'ts. You see, that, that's a legal list. A legalist is someone with a legal list. Your relationship with God involves a legal list of things that you got to do. Of, did I pray enough today? Did I, I'm at church. Man, it's a good day. God's, I mean, he's going to speak to you because you're at church, right? But like he's extra, extra going to because this morning on the way here, I prayed. And I'm good enough now. Now, prayer, we should pray. We should seek God. We're not talking about spiritual disciplines or obedience here as a bad thing, but we're talking about looking at what we do or what I fail to do as being the thing that determines whether or not God is for me this morning. God is for you because Jesus did it all. And that's the gospel. And that's what Paul is confronting. He's confronting this idea of having a legalist. Now, how does Paul deal with this? And I love the way that Paul deals with this. The way that Paul deals with those who are stuck charting the dangerous seas of legalism is he lifts up the lighthouse of the finished work of the cross. He lifts up what Jesus has done. He glorifies Christ. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's calling believers out of the deceptive anti-gospel of legalism and he's calling them into a rediscovery of the finished work of the cross on their behalf. That's why I entitled this message, The Captivation Conflict. 
You know, it's interesting. Did you guys see verse 8? Let's look at it again. Beware, lest anyone, look what it says, cheat you. Cheat you, verse 8. In some of your translations, it reads, capture you, or, or make you captive. It's actually a better word to translate this word cheat with. Um, in the original Greek, the idea is to take someone captive or to carry them off as spoil. It's what legalism does. It, it, it takes you captive. It makes you a prisoner. The word religion literally means to bind, being bound. You know, when you see this idea, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of um, the game Capture the Flag. You ever played this game? This is the jam, all right? Play some Capture the Flag later. Maybe you guys get together, Capture the Flag ministry, go for it, okay? Um, capture the Flag is a great game. Two teams, you got a flag on each side of the field, on the other side of the field, and the, the objective of the, of the game, you have a little safe zone over there, but you also have their prison. Be careful, watch out for the jail, all right? The objective of the game is to cross enemy territory and get the flag without getting tagged and return the flag back your home base. Now, what you don't want to do is get tagged, because if you get tagged, you get captured. I know that's a joke, but this is serious, okay? Paul here is, is describing a similar experience that we can have when it comes to legalism. We get tagged by it. It's kind of deceptive. We don't even realize it. We, come on, we, we fall into works-based relationship with God. It just happens. And then Paul says, you got to watch out, because when you get tagged, what happens is you'll be cheated or you'll be taken captive You'll be made a prisoner of legalism, and you're unable to enjoy the gospel because the goodness of the gospel is based on you and what you do rather than what Jesus did. So he says, don't be led captive. Now, what I love about this is this word captive, um, it's almost like Paul understands something about the gospel and the gospel's ability to take us captive in a good way. And the reality of the gospel, Paul says, is there's a power to it. So what Paul does to counteract the tendency to go to legalism is he lifts up the cross. He lifts up what Jesus has done as a call and as a pull away from what I do into what Christ has done. Because uh, the reality of this is this. Legalism, it's captivating. We, we are made captive often to legalism because of how captivating it is. There's something about the flesh that just loves to earn things, isn't it? I just, I love to be the person that I did it. That because of me. And our whole society is built this way. There, there, there's, a, there's a captivity to it because it's captivating. It draws you in. There's like a, a false glory to it. Boasting in the flesh. Being good enough. And so what Paul does is he lifts up a almost um, a contrary captivating glory. He lifts up the glory of the cross. And he compares the glory of the cross with the glory of self-righteousness as a call to follow what Jesus has done. It would seem that Paul would say that the best way to not be made captive to legalism is to be captivated by what Christ has done. But let's look at this legalism. Let's look at how it can captivate us. Here's the first thing it says. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Notice this first aspect of legalism. According to the tradition of men. The tradition of men. He begins to explain the glory of legalism for a second. And he says the first aspect of legalism that you have to watch out for is this tendency to live by the authoritative traditions of men. The unquestionable traditions of men. This is something that's very true about legalism. Have you noticed this? That legalism always loves to find fault with violating tradition. Legalism loves to find fault with saying, oh, that's how we've always done it. 
and you're not doing it. And you claim to know Jesus, but um, there's drums in your worship band, okay? Well, we don't have drums. We've got a cajon. Close enough, okay? <laughs> this is how it's done. Now, tradition an enemy to the, can be an enemy to the gospel. We, we see Jesus in Mark 7. There's this unique encounter with Jesus in Mark chapter 7 where he comes into Jerusalem with his disciples. And, and I want to just read this to you in Mark 7. It says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and some saw his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, we're not talking about like, guys, yeah, that's kind of nasty, right? Like, yo, hand sanitizer or something, wash your hands. That's not what's going on here. They're talking about a ceremonial washing. A sp- there was a spiritual washing that had to take place. The Pharisees and all the Jews, they did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washings of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Again, not a bad thing. Go by Mr. Clean. We should do this. But what he's saying is there's a ceremonial tradition involved in eating for the Pharisees. They would wash their hands physically, but then they would go through the traditional process, the holy process. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, saying, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands? I can almost speak something like, like talking like that a little bit, like, what, what, you know, like stuttering. Why do they do that, you know, like all upset? And Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips. Great definition of religion here. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. And this is what Jesus says in verse 8. You have let go of the commandment, commandments of God in order to hold on to human traditions. He goes on to say, your traditions have come to the point to where they have nullified the word of God. And Paul says, watch out for legalism that causes you to come under the burden of keeping the tradition of man out of disrespect and neglect of the word of God. Now, as a church, let me say this. Let me say a quick word about tradition. Tradition, you know, Millennials hate tradition, so first and foremost. But post-Christian culture, we're secular. We got it all hanging out, you know. We are, we are uh, super anti, you know, the new way, progressive. It's got to be something new. There's something sweet about tradition. Don't get me wrong. You're like, I have family traditions. They're great, okay? As a church, uh, we, we've been praying and saying, God, what are some, there's something special about saying the church has gathered and worshiped this way for centuries, and so when we gather and we think of, for example, the tradition of the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the bread and the cup, what we are doing is we are participating in something beautiful. We're connecting to the history of the church. That's an amazing tradition. There's a sense in which when it comes to tradition, we're after the reverence that tradition leads us to have in our relationship with God. We, we want that reverence, but we don't want reverence at the expense of relevance, we must always filter every tradition, every practice. We must not fall into the same temptation as the Pharisees to say, this is what the elders do. This is what we do. What? Hold on. Why aren't you doing what the elders do? So they say to Jesus. Why aren't you keeping the elders' tradition? And what had happened? What had happened was that they had taken the container and confused it with the substance. And listen, as a church, 
will never change our substance. Amen? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the word of God. It's the church of Christ. But substances take on new containers. I mean, your Heinz ketchup bottle at your house looked different in the 50s. It was a glass bottle that you had to punch and break your knuckles to get ketchup out of. And then 40 years later, someone's like, we should make this easier, you know? Um, plastic. Now, now your ketchup bottles, they come upside down. Yeah, right? So you don't have to, okay? Here's what's going on. The substance is, well, it might have more high fructose corn syrup in it nowadays. But the substance is the same. It's still ketchup. What's different? The container. And so a lot of times we get so tied to the container, we lose sight of the, the importance of the substance. And so as a church, here's what we want to say. We want to be a church that seeks reverence. We want to be connected to traditions that connect us to the history of the church, but we don't ever want to be a church that's beating people over the head because they worship different than us, because they keep a tradition a little different than us. We want to be available to what God would want to do to make us a little more maybe relevant to the community we're in. So we're going to update our music. We're going to do things with a different container for the sake of relevance. Well, Jesus says, here's the danger. You don't want to nullify the word of God with your tradition. You don't want to allow your tradition to supersede what God has said in his word. So that's what we do with tradition. Okay? God's word is sacred. Tradition needs to be run through the filter of God's word. Just because it's, and sometimes authority for us is more how long has it happened versus God's word. And we can look and go, well, it's been years that this is happening. It's been, a, it's been years that a lot of things have been happening in this world. It doesn't make them right. We, we look to God's word to be the lamp and the test of tradition. So he says, first, with legalism, watch out for that tradition. There's that glory to it. There's that glory, the control to keep the traditions and then try to bring other people under that. But then he goes on to say this. Look, not only is legalism according to the tradition of men. Look at the next thing. He says, it's also according to the basic principles of the world. The basic principles of the world. Um, that, that word, basic principles, is translated in a lot of different ways in, in different Bibles. Some take it to say elemental spirits. Um, some take it to be just elementary concepts. Uh, this word, basic principles, that legalism operates under, basic principles, it's one Greek word that essentially means the basic matters of the universe or the natural substances of the world. He's saying legalism is according to just the basics of life. That's, that's the big idea of what he's saying. Um, one, one author translated this world as saying it this way. When, when Paul says that legalism is according to the basic principles of this world, he's saying that it's according to the ABCs and the one, two, threes of life. And that is the difficulty with the gospel, isn't it? The gospel, the Bible says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is like, Wait, I was taught my ABCs. I was taught my one, two, threes. I was taught, and think about this world, I was taught in every facet of life that you get what you deserve. You get what you put in. You're rewarded for your effort. You suffer you're rewarded for your good works, and you suffer consequences for your bad works. You learn this as a baby. Then you get into school, and you get graded on your performance, and then you get a job, hopefully. And when you have a job, you get paid based on your performance. So the entire ABCs and one, two, threes of life is, well, it can be antithetical to the gospel, which says you don't get what 
you deserve. You don't get what you earn. Jesus got what you earned, and you get what he earned. It's not the ABCs or the one, two, threes. It's something called grace. Grace. And it can be so foreign to us, this idea of unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That's what grace means. But the reason why grace is unmerited favor, it's not because nobody earned it. It's because you didn't earn it. It's unmerited by you. Let's be honest and let's be sure to say that the favor that God has in our life, it was earned. Someone did merit it, but Jesus was the one who merited it. He was the one who did the work. So the Bible says it this way in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says that when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, it was not according to works of righteousness which we have done, but it was according to his mercy that he saved us. That's the message of the gospel. It goes against the ABCs and the one, two, threes of the basic principles that you get what you put in. And then the last thing that he says about this is that it's not according to Christ. That's the big idea here. This kind of idea that I got to keep my legal list to be right with God, it's not Jesus. It's not Christ. No matter how convinced you are of it, you have to look at Christ and ask not, Jesus, how do you measure up to what I have? But how does my theology and my understanding of God measure up to Christ? He's the standard. We don't try to make Jesus in our image. We've been made in God's image. We look to him for truth. And, and this is what, what Paul says. He says the root issue here is it's not of Jesus. It's not of Christ. You know, uh, two days ago, Brittany and Aaron, they did a run out to the store, left me home. If you follow me on Instagram, you're hearing it twice. But um, left, I was, they didn't leave me home, like left me home with Judah and Evie. No, you know, it was like I stayed home with Judah and Evie and Brittany and Aaron and baby Penelope uh, did a run out. Brittany said, I promise you, as she was leaving, I'm going to whole, whole food. Whole Foods. Oh, okay, Whole Foods. I didn't repeat it back to her, should have. She leaves the house, and I thought, and we just kind of moved around the corner from Whole Foods, and I thought, how cool would it be? It would be. Could have been. If me, Judah, and Evie, we walk to Whole Foods, and we, like, do, we surprise them in the aisle, we film it. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. It's a family moment. Nope. Um, so we do this long trek, put the work in. It's tough traveling with a two and a four-year-old without a car. Um, it started, and it started with Jesus. Like, I'll ride my skateboard. And Evie's got the little push bike. And what it turned into was the skateboard strapped to the push bike, you know, and uh, managing these, like, my legs. They could barely make it. But we got there. I carried them. I was, we, we made it. And so we, and the best part about it was we filmed the whole thing. Like, this is going to be so cool. Okay, we're going to go find them. Find them aisle after aisle, and uh, we can't seem to find them. And my thought was, we'll walk there, and we'll get a ride back. So, <laughs> so I call Brittany. I said, um, I FaceTimed her. I said, look where we are, you know? And she said, why are you at Whole Foods? She said, I said, home, home goods. Yeah. A three-letter difference. Did you know that? Whole Foods, home goods, same word. It's like the Larry Yanny Laurel thing, okay? I heard Yanny, she heard, said Laurel, right? I heard Whole Foods, she said home goods. Now, 
Think about this for a second. It doesn't matter how much work I put into getting there. It doesn't matter how convinced I was that this is where she was. She was over there at Home Goods. Same is true of the gospel. It doesn't matter how much work you have, how convinced you are that this is truth. Listen, Jesus is over there in the gospel. And what you need to do is discover where he is and make sure that your gospel is according to Christ. Make sure that you're at the right place with Jesus. And so Paul, he starts to clarify this. He says, for in Jesus, notice verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. This is Jesus. Jesus is not, hey, I've completed some things for you on the cross, and now you've got to finish the job. Paul says, no, you're complete, not based on what you do for him, but because you are in him. And in Christ, you're complete. Because on the cross, Jesus died, and he declared, it's complete. It is finished. The work has been done. Forgiveness has been provided. Sins have been covered. Payment has been made. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Completely. Yeah, thanks. Complete. He says, you're complete in him. That's the gospel. And anything else is not. Any sort of idea we have today in our relationship with God that doesn't say, I am complete because of what Jesus has done is not from God. It might be according to the tradition of men. It might be according to the ABCs and the one, two, threes of how you think about life. But if it's not according to Christ, we're missing out. And so Paul says, no, it's about Jesus. And so he even goes on to, to expound on this great preposition of being in Christ. And he says in verse 11, in Jesus, in Christ, counter, I think, to the idea of for Christ, what I do for God to be good enough. No, in Christ, just like being in the ark, being protected and being sheltered in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, of the, the, body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, look at this, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, so in that day and age, it was these Jewish Judaizing legalists who were coming along saying, oh yeah, we're celebrating your faith in Christ, Gentile. So glad you're a Christian now. You ready? You know, it's kind of like that. You ready for the next step? You ready to really go, go, go all in on your relationship with Jesus? And the way for you to go all in is you got you to gotta, you gotta take it off. Cir now, they were, they were saying this to Gentile men because circumcision, it was an external procedure that explained and, and demonstrated a true invisible covenant with God. It was a visible expression of an invisible reality. It was never meant to be about the visible, emphasize only the visible expression. That's why God would often say to Israel in Deuteronomy, what I really want is a circumcision of your heart, right? What God really cares about is a heart. A Jew, Paul would go on to say, is not someone who's a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. It's about a relationship with God. But they were coming along saying, well, have you, are you really holy? You have to do this to be holy. And I love what Paul does here. He compares this Old Testament expression with a New Testament expression. He compares circumcision with what we do today to express our relationship with God, which is baptism. Baptism. Through baptism, he says, you are buried with Christ, and then you are raised with Christ. That's what baptism is. 
Baptism, it, it, now Paul, by the way, uses the death to life metaphor, even here in Colossians 2, for four different things. But, but in baptism, what he's saying here is one of the great expressions of baptism is when I am baptized, I am not doing something for God to forgive me and cleanse me, right? I don't go into the water dirty to come out clean. And, and we joke about that sometimes, like, oh, it's like every person who's ever baptized has said this joke, right? Like, it will keep you under longer <laughs> if you're extra sinful. <laughs> and then they'll say, or we might need to watch out because the water's going to be dirty. And it's funny, right? Okay, okay, Christian jokes. I'm allergic to Christian subculturism. Sorry. All right. But Paul's saying, no, here's what baptism is. Baptism is where I declare publicly what God has done for me publicly. I die, and then I come back to life. That's the picture there. I'm, I'm buried and I'm raised as a display and as an association with the fact that Jesus Christ was buried and raised for me. Baptism says it's not what I do, it's what Jesus did. And I'm identifying with the fact that I am right with God, not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus paid it all. That's baptism. I encourage you, if you haven't yet been baptized, we would love for you to, for you to be baptized. We'd love to, to be a part of that in your life, for you to publicly associate with the fact that Jesus publicly died for you. Now, it's meant to be many other things, but here Paul is, is pinning it in on this idea of the gospel. This is the gospel. He's saying it's a different kind of circumcision. We come from the culture of you got to be good enough, you got to do these things to be holy. But he's saying Jesus has done a, done, done a complete thing for you to be holy, and we display that in baptism. And then he just, he just nails it in verse 13 through the rest. He, he says, listen, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. And the way that Paul, again, leads their eyes to be captivated with what they can do for God is he reminds them of what Jesus has completed for sinners, what Jesus has done. Look what he says. He says, first and foremost, what is Christ on verse 13? And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. And you could beautifully compare what Christ has done compared to what legalism does. What Jesus has done is he's brought us to life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the letter kills. That's what the law does. Paul says, when I discovered the law, he sounds like a, a teenage white girl, but he said, I died. That's what he said. I died. I died today, right? Paul says, when I discovered the law, what came with the knowledge of the law? The law is good. The law is perfect, making wise the simple. But Paul said, when I discovered the law, I, I came to know something about me, another law. There was this law of sin within me. I'm a sinner. And through sin came death. The wages of sin is death. And that's what the law has done historically. It's what the law continues to do. Okay. You know, there's today, there's even like still like, there's like, teachings. Hey, we're going to do a 10-part series on the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't teach obedience, but obedience apart from Christ is legalism. And what that can be is like, a, we're going to kill you with the law, slowly, for 10 weeks. You know? Like, we're going to go through and just, I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I don't measure up. That's what the law does. In fact, did you know at Mount Sinai, when the law was given, what happened? At the foot of the mountain, 3,000 people died in Mount Sinai. 3,000 people died. There's a great comparison between that Pentecost with Acts 2 Pentecost, because when the Spirit was given in Acts 2, what happened? 3,000 people were saved. The law kills. What does the Spirit do? Brings to life. What do we most desperately need? Do we need to be better people? No, we need to be living people. 
What our community needs is not a bunch of rules to live by so they, they can get the life they never had. The best life now, do these 10 things. The problem with humanity is not just immorality, it's spiritual death. We're dead. The law, we, and we look at the law, and Paul goes on to say, you, we think the law is going to help that, but it actually makes it worse. It makes you more aware of how broken you are. So what did Jesus do? Jesus did for us what we most desperately needed him to do. He took our dead lives and he brought life to them. He raised us up. You were dead. He brought you to life. You were walking around, he says in Ephesians 2, like the walking dead. According to the course of this world. Dead but walking. Everywhere you go. Dominated by the powers of this world. Dominated by the controls of the flesh. And by nature children of wrath. Separated from God in death. And what God has done in Christ is he has brought us back to life. It's what the Spirit does. It's what the gospel does. It gives us life. No longer alienated from God because God was rich in his mercy. And he brought me back to life. Then he goes on to say, what else has Jesus done? He has also, in verse 13, sorry, verse, yes, 13, he says, not only has he brought you to life, but he says, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Another thing the law can't do. Another thing legalism can't do. Um, in Romans 6, Paul says that our sinful flesh makes the law weak in its ability to give us what we need because we're sinners. But what the law could not do, Paul says, God did by sending his son Jesus. What can't the law do? The law can give you a bunch of moral things to do, but when it comes to your relationship with God, the law can't forgive the wrong that you've done. No matter how many good things you do for the rest of your life, what about all the bad things you've done? I just got to be good. And so here's what we do. So because we know that's true, and, that, and listen, by the way, that is the stain that's haunting humanity. That's why people need the gospel, because they need more than just here's how you do good things. They need to be reconciled from their bad things. They need healing from shame. They need forgiveness for sin. And so because the world, all they have is the law and being good enough, what we tend to do is, so here's the, our next best thing. Well, if my good can't erase my bad, hopefully my good, what, outweighs my bad. That's the hope. Hopefully when I die, I'm just a little bit better than my neighbor. I love my wife a little bit more. I love God a little bit more. I go to church a little bit more. Hopefully in the end, when the scales are measured, I measure up. Um, and one of the most problematic things about this thinking is that the Bible actually has a lot to say, not just about our bad deeds, but about our good deeds too. The problem is some of us need forgiveness for the good things we've done because of why we did it. So God says to Israel, all your righteousness is filthy rags before me because man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. So Tim Keller says, as the church, we need to get better at not just repenting over the bad things we do, but for the reasons why we do good. You see, we need more than the law. He says, here's what you get in Jesus. You get forgiveness of all your trespasses. In the Greek, it's, it's connected to the word grace. Washed over, covered over, forgiveness of all your trespasses. Release, and I love this part about this truth, all your trespasses. Not just forgiving your trespasses. How many of us need to hear that reminder? All of our trespasses. All of them. Not some of your sins. Here's a big one. If you're in Christ, God doesn't just forgive you for what you've done in the past. It's forgiveness for the present. 
It's not just forgiveness for the present. God's forgiven you for the future. God's forgiven you for things you haven't even done yet. All your trespasses. We're going to do stupid things. But in Christ, we have more than I better do better next time. In Christ, I have the love of God. The forgiveness of God. Canceling out my debt. Now, how did he do that? I love this. Look at this next verse. How did he do that? By verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. It was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a shame for us to bring something back that Jesus has taken away. What did Jesus take away? The handwriting of requirements that was against us. And this word that he uses, handwriting, it's a unique Greek word that can have two different pictures. It can have a legal picture and it can have a financial picture, but both are true. In a financial sense, the handwriting of requirements against you is all of your debts all of your debts between what you've done and now what you owe God. Your debts. What you've done and what you've failed to do. Your lack in your relationship with God. The handwriting could also be in a legal sense. It could be your criminal charges. In a legal sense. The handwriting of requirements. It's the handwritten list of all that you owe God or the handwritten list of all of your criminal charges and all your sins. And Paul says that your forgiveness comes freely to you through Jesus Christ because on the cross, those requirements were put on Jesus. On the cross, your criminal charges, your sin, just like Barabbas, was put on Jesus. And he traded places with you. And so God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, sinners, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And even in that age, on a cross, what you would have above the criminals, you would have the criminal charges nailed Above the criminal. Remember that. Your sin put on Jesus. Forgiveness came at a cost. His life. And then lastly, in verse 15 it says, He disarmed principalities and powers, and I love this, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing in it. So, when, when God nailed those criminal charges that were against you to the cross, He disarmed the accuser. He disarmed condemnation. He disarmed. What does it disarm mean? It means to take a weapon away from someone, doesn't it? It's what you do when you capture an enemy. You say, drop your weapons. Well, Jesus dropped his weapons, not his own, Satan's. You didn't have to tell him. He did it. He made him drop. That's what he, he disarmed him. You don't say, hey, come here. I just captured you, criminal. What do you got? Just hold on to your rifle. It's all good. No. It's part of victory. And the victory of the cross was that on the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan. Because what was Satan's weapon? Well, it was, in a lot of ways, a contortion of the law. That's what Satan does. Satan takes the good things that God created and he twists them. He twists them for evil purposes. And so he takes a good thing like, remember, he did this with Jesus too, didn't he? He took the word of God and twisted it to try to tempt Jesus into sin. And so Satan too today, to, to even children of God still, what Satan does is he takes the law of God, something good, and he uses it as a something that God made for us. He uses it against us. Because of our sinful flesh, that law, it's contrary to us. And so he uses it as a weapon, and he brings condemnation. But on the cross, I love this, Jesus disarmed Satan from that weapon so that we could say today, according to Romans 8.1, that there is therefore what? Now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. 
No more. No more condemnation. Why? Because Jesus was condemned. Jesus took my condemnation. And on the cross, I love this too, as he disarmed the enemy from using that tool on believers who tried to, and by the way, these are the two, uh, that's the pendulum that legalism often swings in. You have the gospel right there in the middle. Here's legalism. It leads to either pride, I'm good enough, I'm better than you, I've earned it, or it leads to shame, I'm not good enough, you're better than me, I've fallen from it. Condemnation. And the gospel comes right in the middle of that. It says it's not pride, it's not shame, it's humility. I have nothing apart from Jesus. He paid it all and all to him I owe. It's the cross. And in doing so, here's this last verse, I'll invite the worship team up. It says, having disarmed principalities and powers, notice this, he made, this is so good, he made a public spectacle of them. A public, they were the laughing stock of the universe, is what that means. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Um, you think about this, because Jesus died a very shameful, humiliating, public death. Naked and vulnerable, um, helpless. In his, in his meekness, he, he was pinned to a cross, no way to defend himself. And Jesus, in many ways, I'm sure, to the, to the enemy, was looked on as, as a public spectacle. But here's what God's doing. And this is often what God's doing. God is often doing more than what meets the eye, right? So what meets the human eye is God is dying and the enemy is winning. The enemy thought that he was making a public spectacle of Jesus. And that's what's funny, right? Because what was going on? Jesus was making a public spectacle of the enemy. Jesus was using this instrument of shame and death to disarm those that were putting him there, those that were crucifying him, those who were against him. He went into the grave, and the best news of all was three days later, he triumphed over them in it. This is who Jesus is. In 2 Corinthians, the Bible says this, that God always leads us in triumph in Christ. And so that's, that's the goal. That's my sermon in one sentence. That Jesus has triumphed over your sin. He's triumphed and become victorious over death. He has paid it all. And what he wants to do in that victory is lead you to walk in that victory. He wants to carry you by the hand. He wants to lead you along that you would be in triumph, that you wouldn't live in condemnation, that you wouldn't buy into the lie to, to boast in legalism, but that you would stand at the foot of the cross and say to everybody else, come on, there's room. There's room for sinners like me. We're all broken. We've all fallen short. Whatever it is, all of our trespasses put on Jesus. It's the gospel. Forgiven. So what we want to do here is we want to remember that in the way that Jesus calls us to, and it's through the Lord's table, through the Lord's supper. This is a time for us to press into and lean into what Jesus has accomplished, to remember his forgiveness of your sin. And so we have four sort of stations available, two here in the front. I want to remind that there's two in the back too so that we don't have to you know, be waiting up here at the front. There's, there's four spots during this song. This is a chance for us to remember the cross and to repent, repent over our sin and repent over our legalism. 
repent over our tendency to have a legalist for me to measure up to God's love. So let's take this minute during this song. Find that in your, in your heart. Create a secret place between you and God, and I'll come up at the end.